There's no better time to become a member of the DSR network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and uh, it is that time of the week again for our spy show. So I am joined by our co-host, the peripatetic and wonderful Mark Polymeropoulos. How are you doing today, Mark? Good. I, I have a very important item to discuss because I was just up in New York City, and it's it's really, I put it out on Twitter, but it's the it's the beauty, the wonder, the incredible nature of the black and white cookie. Wow. Which is one of the great things on the planet. I got it at H&H Bagels, another really New York institution. So I'm, I'm, I'm still reveling in my black and white cookie that I ate in the train on the way home. Well, first of all, black and white cookies are great. And uh, <laughs> it is a New York thing. You're absolutely right about this. We finally found something we can agree on. Perfect. H&H Bagels used to be a great institution. It was sold. It is now owned by some corporate entity. So it is substantially less cool than it was. Uh, but you will be pleased to know, and all of our Beltway listeners will be pleased to know, that H&H Bagels, I think, is coming to Virginia. I think they're opening. Oh, there you go. Now close See. To Virginia. Uh, these are the kind of things that uh, we discuss on this show. <laughs> Another of the kinds of things we discuss on this show are different perspectives um, on the world of intelligence. And we have somebody terrific today to discuss that with, as we do every week, uh, uh, that is David McCluskey, who is the author of Damascus Station, uh, which was an exceptionally well-received spy novel that was released about a year ago, and the soon-to-be-released Moscow X. He is a former CIA analyst and a former consultant at McKinsey & Company, um, and uh, Mark Polymeropoulos, uh, who I, until this moment, I did not know that he'd actually read a book ever, uh, noted that <laughs> McCloskey is the new post laureate of the CIA operations officer. There's a lot of other fancy praise um, for your books. Welcome, David. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Um, uh, sorry to tease you so early on a Monday morning. Mark, but why don't you kick this off? Uh, I didn't even know, uh, frankly, that you had any friends that were former CIA analysts. 
I thought they were well, all from the operations side. That is, and then, that is like not, all not, operations not officers, you look down on the analysts. That's not true. <laughs> I, you know, I, at times I question uh, uh, some of the analytic judgments. Um, I think it's fair to say what's happened, you know, recently on Russia Ukraine. I don't think, our, you know, I think our, our analysts um, overestimated the, the the power of the Russian military. But we're going to go off on a tangent if we go down this because David is an exceptional analyst or was. And now he's an exceptional author. And uh, and I actually, you know, uh, uh, the other David, David Rothkopf, you did read a, a blurb um, of mine on the back of his new book. Um, and it's really, uh, you know, it's it's 100 percent, you know, uh, it, it earned. The book is fantastic. So let's let's kind of dive into that. David McCloskey, you know, right away. Give us a brief overview um, uh, of the book. And and in one sense, too, uh, you know, how you took a crack at describing something. It's not that it's not the CIA case officer under diplomatic cover. It's under what we call non-official cover. So um, give us a sense of, of how you wrote it, why you wrote it and what everyone should get out of this. Yeah. So uh, and thanks again for having me, guys. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. Um, so the book started and there were a number of different problems that that appeared as I wrote, uh, mostly dealt by by Putin and the sort of twists in, in what was actually going on in Russia over the past couple of years. But uh, I started with the idea of what would it look like if from a covert action standpoint, the agency really took the gloves off against Putin. And um, the title of the book, Moscow X, is uh, basically a fictional component of the CIA's Russia house in the novel that's charged with taking a pretty aggressive outside the box uh, perspective on Russia and implementing operations accordingly. So uh, a couple of the officers in the book, uh, including some that are quite deranged uh, and wonderful characters, decide that they will... um, essentially make Putin believe that a coup is underway when one is in fact not. Uh, And the officers they go to to implement this plan are under, uh, as Mark said, non-official cover. Uh, So they are a a bit of a different breed from the kind of typical typical perspective on an agency case officer who's got diplomatic cover, works in and out of the embassy. Uh, These are officers under non-official cover, one of whom is not even an American citizen. Uh, we talk a little bit about that too, if we want to, uh, who basically try to go after one of Putin's money men and they come, uh, in contact with him, his wife, uh, who's a banker and unbeknownst to the CIA is an SVR knock or the, you know, sort of the SVR version of a knock, uh, and who's playing kind of a game all her own. So it becomes a bit of a cat and mouse between a Russian knock and two CIA knocks, uh, to see if the agency can pull off this operation. And uh, it's obviously about sort of modern day espionage. But uh, I hope, you know, as as I wrote, I, I hope that it became more and more about kind of what does truth look like, uh, you know, in in kind of the current war, intelligence war between the, the, the Americans and, and the Russians. And, you know, what is what does vengeance look like um, in that context as well? Well, uh, you couldn't have picked a more timely subject, and um, as a sometime author myself, I, I have to say I sympathize with you, because the the Russia narrative must have changed thirty times while you were writing the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, and yeah. how how did how did that confound you? And did you end up, you know, hating Putin even more by the end of this for um, making it so difficult to get the book done? 
Yeah, yeah. At some points, it was hard to determine if my anger toward him was more about what was going on in the war versus what he was doing to the plots of my novel and making me rewrite things over and over again. I had turned in a draft, a very a kind of a first draft to my editor um, in January of 2022. And so he was reading it as the invasion happened. And it was pretty clear that I was going to have to do some major surgery on it because not only did the plot need to be tweaked substantially, which, you know, talking about fiction, I mean, that's, you're basically ripping the whole thing out, you know, almost down to the studs. Um, but I also had to do some real work to kind of make sure, I mean, a lot of the novel takes place inside Moscow and St. Petersburg. And so how, you know, how do you paint a picture of what's actually going on in those cities and what does it feel like? in, you know, the new sort of fortress Russia that we're living in. So I had to go back to the ground floor at least once and that there were multiple points where I felt like I had to kind of go in and dust things up because some new event had taken place that, you know, um, felt like it needed to be kind of worked into the novel in some way. And there's a balance here, right? Because you can't, the book's got to be done at some point and it's not a, it's not a book about the war, right? It's it's sort of fictionally taking place against the backdrop of that conflict. Um, so I had to stop at some point, but it was it 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 created a lot of work and rewrites along the way to get this thing out the door for sure. One of the, one of the things that is in the book, of course, and and David Rothkoff, you will you will see where I'm going on this is a very classic, <laughs> wonderful dive bar located in Northern Virginia. Oh, the, the Vienna Inn does make an appearance. Um, so talk a little bit about that. And then, of course, <laughs> and, uh, you know, a, a tremendous character named Proctor, who I think is, is, a, is a kind of operations officer we all wished we could be. But but really, then, then kind of jump into the notion of the, the praise you've gotten from a lot of us, you know, the former tribe, is just that, you know, you, you do capture, you know, some of the trials and tribulations, the realities of being an operations officer. It's, it's actually very hard to do that. And I think a lot of the criticism myself and others, you know, have on, on espionage novels is, is that they don't have that sense of reality. But if you throw in a character like Proctor, who is kind of a total badass, you throw in a watering hall in Northern Virginia, where we all frankly live uh, half the time, you know, you do get that sense of, uh, of reality. So, so how'd you, how'd you find that, that kind of magic there? The magic, what he means by magic is when the operations officers are described as looking like a Greek God, but with the brains of a Nobel prize winner. <laughs> Look, well, I, it's 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 fi it's fiction, but I can't push it. That, I cannot push it that far. Okay, like you know, there's, I, I gotta I gotta make some bow toward reality. No. Um, I uh, <laughs> look, I uh, I've had a lot of fun with this in the novels with a lot of the different case officer characters because I, I was struck when I was writing Damascus Station, for example, that when you actually get down to the realities of that job. It's not, I mean, a lot of it's writing cables, right? And reading cables. And that's not particularly fun to read about in the novel. But there are some underlying aspects to the role. I mean, some, some, some really interesting ones that I thought made wonderful kind of grist for novels. I mean, I think the, the sort of dance and the act of spotting, assessing, developing, recruiting other humans to commit treason, which is, you know, sort of an insane thing to do. Like that whole process was fascinating to me. And to be quite honest with you, it was not something I feel like I've actually learned more about it 
since I left the agency by spending time talking just, I mean, the answer to the question, like, how did I kind of, how do I capture this is I just talked to a lot of case officers about it. And a lot of, for, you know, a lot of people, some people are still inside, a lot of formers and just kind of hear the stories, understand how it works and then start to think about, okay, how do, I mean, the, take the Vienna in, right? Uh, well, in the novel, in Moscow X, Proctor, who, you know, is coming off of this sort of busted up tour in Dushanbe, and she comes back and she has a few meetings at headquarters. And then I was sort of thinking about, well, you know, she's about to kick off a two or three day bender to kind of get over what she went through. And where do you, where do you start that? Well, I, you know, there's a limited number of options. Uh, the Vienna Inn would be right at the top of the list. So she kind of motors out of the compound and heads straight there. So um, it felt like, you know, and I kind of test that with a few case officers and, you know, Mark's kind of laughing and nodding here. And you're like, okay, that seems pretty close to accurate. You know, I don't have to paint them all as shocking uh, Greek gods to get to the the realities of some of these things. So I've had a lot of fun with that in the, in the novels and, and trying to work in also just some kind of real stories as little Easter eggs throughout has also been but, a lot of but fun. But don't you find it challenging as an author to really um, capture how shitty the Vienna Inn is? Oh, now that's a words. Wow. <laughs> I've uh, I've I've written about a lot of shitty places in the novel, oh, so I feel you know. <laughs> By the way, so so as we're going to go now down my my other favorite subject of dive bars in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, the other night, I went to a place called Rudy's. Just hear me out here. Rudy's is looks very much like the Vienna, Inn, but at Rudy's, unlike the Vienna, Inn, you buy a beer and they give you a free hot dog, and I thought that was incredible. That's uh, that's something you that are, I'm gonna have to go to Marty, the owner of the Vienna, and, and offer that as a suggestion. You are as you are super easy to be pleased. I mean, seriously, <laughs> my dog is the same way. If you give him a treat, but uh, let, hey, he came down. He came down to Dallas last year, and I took him to a dive bar we down went here. To a it was great one, it was his one request. It was his one request. He's like, I don't want to go anywhere nice. I said, I can do that. And, and we went that to, place yeah, is great. Went to a great dive bar, great yeah. place. Well, let me the Lakewood Land. Let me ask you a yeah. question, Mark. So you're in the middle of. Pick a country in the Middle East or someplace you've been. Did you look for dive bars in those places? Uh, usually there were Irish pubs, but for sure. So one of the great <laughs> things about serving all over in the Middle East, there's always an Irish pub. But I'm going to throw something at David now. Give me the best shawarma stand in Damascus. You better get this right. I, I would live there for several years. You have spent extended so, time there. So I, I honestly don't, I don't know the name of it other than I know that it's where all the Iranians went. It was called Farouk's. That's right. And it was, uh, right. it was uh, near the embassy. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. And, That's right. and undoubtedly it was the only shawarma stand called Farouk's. <laughs> In all of, all called, of there's only, there's only many, one. There's only one. Right. How many could possibly be called Farouk's, right? It was good. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, wow. Uh, no, no, I just have this idea, you know, that, you know, here is Mark and he's out there in, you know, Damascus or some other shithole. And um, it is like, where's the nearest Irish pub? I mean, oh, yeah. what would, how would that give him away? Well, let me give you a secret about, about Damascus, too, is that at the uh, at the Damascus, uh, what was it, the Sheraton? Um, that's yeah. where, where there was a great. Uh, uh, you know, bar which served burgers. That's where the Syrian elite used to hang out. Amazingly enough, drinking beer and eating burgers. So that's something that a CI officer would, of course, uh, obtain that information and perhaps use. There it was a nightclub. There was a nightclub in the basement too, and the oh, name yeah. escapes beyond that one. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Well, that nightclub in the basement. Real classy establishment. Hey, look, there was a nightclub in the basement of the Metropole Hotel in Moscow that I will never forget um, because I've never seen so many unsavory characters in one place, Um, (laughs) men and men and women alike. Right, and it's a Star Wars bar. It is. Right. It really is the Star Wars bar. But <laughs> then you walk around the Metropole Hotel, and you're like, "Well, Lenin was here," and you know, it's like, it's it's suffused with history and sleaze both at the same time. Um, Those two things travel together, I think. Well, general. they do, yeah. and I, I mean, but they must be a big portion of your book, Moscow X. I mean, there's a de- there's a decent amount of sleaze in there, just a, a fun amount, I think. Um, it, but you know, it was, uh, I did try as best I could to make it feel like the actual present day Russia, right? Like to not go to her to cartoon or to not make it feel like it's the 1970s and we're in the middle of the cold war, but to kind of, that was one of the issues with updating it, right? was like, how do I, how do I deal with the fact that now things have fundamentally shifted inside Russia over the past couple of years? and try to capture that in the novel. And there's a decent amount of fun and sleaze that goes with that too. Uh, so with that, with that, now just as you're, as you're talking about this, you know, there is, you know, you went from Damascus to, to Moscow, um, two kind of, you know, fascinating and legendary places where CIO officers, you know, presumably, let's just say that, uh, operated. Um, and and with, with, thanks with, for adding the presumably. Yeah, so the, the the you know the Legendary. publication review board will come after us here, but but I think that for for many of us and, and perhaps you know uh, uh, for those there's a, there's a lot of Russia hands who are going to read your book, David. Um, but for those of us who served in Damascus, you know, going back to Damascus Station, it's pretty pretty remarkable when you you read it. You almost have a little bit of you know post traumatic stress. I mean, the way you describe the streets, you do you, you describe the kind of the 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 Syrian intelligence presence. Um, and then you start thinking about, you know, the overall tragedy of Syria. And again, I could, you could say the same thing for what's happening now with Russia, Ukraine, if you have, you know, old Russia hands reading it. Um, are there any lessons from what the, kind of the, the U.S. policy in Syria and some of the policy mistakes that you think U.S., uh, uh, the administration now can take on how they approach uh, kind of Russian perfidy in, in Ukraine? Boy, I mean, um, I think on on Syria, it, it would definitely be fair to say there have been a, a decent number of mistakes over the past decade in, in dealing with that country. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm sort of struggling with the question a little bit because I do think you know they're obviously pretty different kind of geostrategic contexts, and it, you have we fundamentally have think about um, you know sort of the U.S. role in Syria versus Ukraine. Like Ukraine, one of the things that has become abundantly clear is that we have a real partner who who is you know, in, in the government that is actually coherent and able to resist, right? We fundamentally never had that in Syria, right? At least not in the same way, um, which made all of our efforts there to sort of, at least when you're talking about this sort of anti-Assad plank of the policy, um, you know, we fundamentally struggled with finding a group of people who were, um, you know, amenable enough to our interests and coherent enough organizationally to really promote change. Um, and we can obviously go back if we want to and talk about those first few years of the war and how we probably could have done a lot more to support what started off as a relatively peaceful protest movement and how we could have probably done a lot more from a humanitarian standpoint over the years and how we should have certainly done more 
to punish the Assad regime for, you know, crossing the quote unquote red line around the use of chemical weapons in 2013, 2012 and 2013. And all of those, you know, sort of could haves and should haves, I think should have been done a lot differently. Um, you know, on Ukraine, I think, you know, one of the things that does seem sort of thematically the same is a uh, slowness to support partners or potential partners, or at least we're kind of still playing this game of maybe we don't want you to win. We just want the other side to lose. And we're kind of slow rolling the delivery of, of, you know, weapon systems and what and kit that would be helpful uh, to, you know, promoting a Ukrainian victory. And so it does seem like there's sort of this same kind of strategic slowness here, which I don't, which I kind of understood maybe earlier on in the conflict of trying to feel out where, um, what we could have done in terms of support to the Ukrainians that would not, you know, that would be sort of quote unquote tolerable to the Russians. But it seems like we've now gone through this movie a number of times and we're still pretty slow in that I don't quite understand. And I see a lot of similarities with Syria there where it's like, we're just fundamentally, you know, maybe a little bit overreactive and slow when we're thinking about, you know, divvying out our support. Um, to potential allies and partners or real allies and partners, as the case may be. Well, you've come, you've walked right up to where I was going to pose my question. And that is, uh, I can imagine that to some extent, the inspiration for the Moscow X plot is a sense that we are not being aggressive enough with regard to Putin. Is that true? Is that what you believe? It certainly, it certainly started that way. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I was conceiving this thing a couple years ago, when you kind of tick through the list of what Putin had done and you thought, you know, I thought, hey, there's an opportunity here. And especially, in, you know, talking with formers and, you know, current case officers about it, you kind of thought, I kind of thought, look, there's some grist here for, um, thinking about what it what it would look like if we got far more aggressive because I think there there was room to do that to make Putin feel less comfortable with his position domestically um and to to take the gloves off in a way that you know I think the Russians were taking the gloves off against us and you know I, I'm not reading any of the intel right now obviously but it it does feel like um you know there've been elements of our response in Ukraine that have uh have been quite muscular and helpful and like we we've maybe taken we've finally you know in in fits and starts kind of stood our ground here in a way that when you kind of draw a line from Syria or you think about all of the external the, the assassinations abroad um bounties in Afghanistan I mean you could sort of go through this list of of Putin and his intelligence services kind of poking um you know, the use of directed energy weapons. I mean, you could kind of just on and on and on kind of go through this list of stuff and say, like, wh- where's the response from the agency, you know? And so the book, I think, started as an effort to say, well, what might it look like if we just drew a line in the sand from a covert action standpoint and tried to make him feel less comfortable? It definitely came out of that perspective. Do you think we're 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 not aggressive enough, Mark? Oh, I, I have been very vocal uh, about that. I think that, you know, the, the administration has had this kind of sense of, uh, of being overly cautious. You know, there were all, all the red lines that they claimed were out there. We, you know, we've blown past. The Ukrainians have. They're launching drone strikes in Moscow. There is, you know, there's, they have part of the operations of Ukrainian intelligence. They're running partisans 
um, uh, uh, inside Russia. And so I think we, you know, unfortunately have been slow. And that that actually translates into Ukrainians who have lost their lives. I mean, what I don't understand now, and David, you and I have talked about this over and over again, I think you share this view, where these attack of missiles, these, you know, these long range missiles that the Ukrainians really want and need. And there's this kind of drip drip that perhaps they shall be approved soon, but they're not. And so I think we have just been been far too cautious. And, uh, uh, and unfortunately, it's going to it's going to cost Ukrainians. I don't know if it's, you know, is, will it be will it will it have been decisive? No, I think the Ukrainians still will prevail. But I think we could have shortened the uh, uh, the war. And, and one of the things that David, David McCloskey is totally right. I remember sitting at CIA headquarters uh, and, and a very senior officer uh, actually said, let's give the, the Syrians just enough, the Syrian opposition just enough to get to the negotiating table. And that always haunted me because I thought that was quite immoral. And I say that from the sense of being someone who would be on the ground working with an indigenous force and, and you know, as, as they are their families and they are, you know, fighting and dying. And so I think that same narrative, that same thought process uh, uh, at times goes into our work with the Ukrainians. Um, but ultimately, we end up seeming to do the right thing. So it's, it is a little bit reactive. It's a little bit of a painfully slow process, but hopefully, hopefully we'll see some good news coming out of Zelensky's visit. You always see things at the glass half full, but let's be honest about our policy towards Syria. Assad is still there. Assad is, Assad is not only still there. um, He's being supported by our allies in the region. If we provide support to country X, and Assad ends up getting support from Country X, then we are indirectly supporting Assad. Uh, And by extension, Vladimir Putin's policy in Syria. I mean, you have to admit, and look, David, you know, you can drop the gloves here, but, you know, um, our, our Syria policy from day one under Obama, let's be clear, this was a bipartisan failure, has been terrible. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's right. I I think it's helpful analytically to kind of split the Syria policy in two parts. There's like an anti-Assad, there's a there's an Assad or Syrian regime policy, and then there's an I- counter ISIS policy. And I think I would give the counter ISIS policy relatively high marks. Um, not that you know there's plenty of things we could discuss there, but uh, it has not been the abysmal failure that the counter Assad or the sort of, you know, Syrian regime focused policy has been. And I think, you know, you look back a decade on this now, I mean, really go back further. We never found effective ways, really, of pushing the Syrian regime to do things that we wanted, either with carrots or sticks. It was it has been a sort of perennial challenge now for more than two decades to try to figure out how we influence this country to do things that we would like them to do. Um, I have come, you know, and I think that the policy kind of has become even, if it's possible, less coherent in recent years than it was before, as I think more or less we've thrown up our hands collectively and said, can't fix it, too complicated, don't care, you know, and we've, this is a company kind of a general tilt away from in terms of just energy and focus, I think, away from the region, um, where we've just said we don't care. You know, it's become a system or a country, quote unquote, of, you know, warlords and sort of militia fiefdoms. And, um, you know, they're selling billions of dollars of, you know, party drugs, Captagon uh, in the Gulf and in, in Europe. I mean, 
this is not a, a country that um, we're really going to be able to influence in any sort of positive way, I think. Uh, and, and honestly, I've kind of come to the conclusion of, you know, I'm not even sure it's worth it, you know, us sort of defining the policy as such anymore. I mean, it's more about just mitigating some of the really nasty effects that come out of out of that place and realizing that we're never we're not going to resource a policy to affect sort of positive change in the Syrian regime's behavior. It's more about managing the fires that they set, whether it's the drug trade, whether it's, you know, the ungoverned territory that could be used by groups to strike us or our allies, or whether it's the refugee and humanitarian crisis. Um, but uh, I've kind of come to maybe a more more doom and gloom view on that than I than I had in the past, if that was even possible. Interesting. This is the point in our show where we say to the people who are listening out there, if you are in the general public and you are not a member, you're not going to be able to listen to the rest of this podcast because we take uh, uh, giving our members uh, uh, special benefits very seriously. Uh, and so in each and every podcast from the DSR Network, there is bonus content for members only. For the thousands of you who are members, we are grateful for your support and uh, you will be grateful that you're a member because in just a moment we will continue with this and you'll be able to hear it. If you're not a member, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click membership. It's $5 a month. It's not very much. Um, and you will get tons and tons of bonus content. We're producing more and more podcasts with each and every month, and that means more and more bonus content. So uh, go, if you're not a member, go sign up right now. If you are a member, stand by. 